It's a lovely day. Henley, Henley. Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta da! The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Looking at new stories in the world of books. And we can sit back and listen to Pride and Prejudice. Hello, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio with uh, Julian and myself. Hello Julian, how are you today? I'm very well, Heather, thank you very much indeed and hello to you. Thank you very much. I've had a lovely weekend. I've been in the sunshine. You can see I've got a bright red nose now. Indeed, yes. Do be careful. Absolutely. (laughs) Every week we aim to delight you, our listeners, with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And as always, we've got a fun-filled hour designed for you this week. And this week, we've got a special treat indeed for you all. And it's story time with a retelling of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. But to start the show, as usual, um, Heather and I have been scouting through the newspapers to see if we've got some little tidbits for you um, in the world of books. And so let's uh, start with a quick roundup of what we've winkled out of the press. Um, well, I'm going to kick off um, this okay. uh, this week yeah. because um, uh, we're delighted, aren't we, Heather, uh, to, to have found that Jennifer Saint's second book, Electra, has popped straight into the Times bestseller list on publication. Now, you, um, as listeners remember, Heather interviewed Jennifer Saint last year on the launch of her first book, which is called Ariadne. Now, Saint has found a really nice little niche for herself in the market of uh, the popular retelling of Greek myths by putting women in the centre stage in Greek mythology. Now, the story of Electra tells of three women uh, as each of them battle to forge their own destiny. And Jennifer Saint explores how suffering is passed down the generations and in this compelling novel. And it's told in rich and evocative style. And it really is well worth a read. Yes, it was lovely interviewing her actually on mm. her first book. So it's nice yes. to see authors doing well in subsequent books. Indeed. And, and, I, and I'd like to think that shortly after we were seeing all sorts of views popping up. And I think that's because of turning pages. Of course, of course. <laughs> Don't doubt that in the slightest. Now, we were talking last week about crime books and how great they are. So I'm going to recommend to everybody Mick Heron's eighth Slough House novel, Bad Actors, which has just been published. Now, the series has been adapted into a TV series starring Oscar-winning actor Gary Oldman as uh, Jackson Lamb who's the hero of the Slough House um, crime stories. They, uh, the novels have been published in 20 languages, have won both the CWA Steel and Gold Daggers, have been shortlisted for the Theakston's Crime Novel of the Year 
four times and has won the Denmark's Palais Rosenkrantz Prize. So a new book in this series is always a treat. And if you're yet to start on the um, Slough House series, then Slow Horses is the first book. And they all have this rich seam of black humour running throughout. So I would thoroughly recommend you to buy and enjoy. Mm, it sounds sounds good, like a good read. Now, we've got a, a lovely story here. Um, 40 drawings by the much-loved illustrator Quinton Blake, um, many of them featuring blue and yellow with the Ukrainian flag, have gone up for sale through the auction house Bonhams. Now, Blake's work ha, um, um, has illustrated authors such as Michael Rosen, Russell Hoban, and most famously, of course, Roald Dahl. And in 1999, he became the first children's laureate which i think was fantastic and the post was designed to raise the profile of children's literature now the illustrator has denoted um, sorry, donated um, the works to raise money for the ukraine appeal which is being run by the charity hope and homes for children well that's a, certainly a really good cause there it is it is um, now, in book club news, Sue has been in touch to tell her to tell us about the uh, Lim and Thelwall U3A book group, which has been reading a series of books about the Second World War. It's nice to see that we're expanding our reach. Of yes. Who is listening? So uh, Sue's. Uh, written into to tell us that House of Glass by Hadley Freeman is about the Glass family, part of a Jewish family living in Paris at the time of the occupation. Now, it's quite interesting because in their group, one group member who recommended the book said it was a family firm favourite. But most of the group felt that although it was quite informative, it wasn't a book necessarily to recommend. Now, on the other hand, All the Light You Cannot See by Anthony Durr is eminently recommendable. Like House of Glass, it's set in France during the occupation. and This time it concerns a blind girl and her father, a model maker, whose lives become entangled with that of a clever German lad who is drafted into the Hitler Youth because of his outstanding understanding of radio technology. Now, the story is both engaging and absorbing, Sue tells me, with a fast-paced narrative told through unusual short chapters. And most of the group found All the Light a really enjoyable read. And next month's book is The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. So they haven't started this yet, but of course, having three books run on the same theme is really quite interesting. So, of course, we're all looking forward to see what this third viewpoint of life in occupied France will be. Mm, interesting. Yeah, Very interesting. it's a good approach, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Now, this little um, and I get this little story come up is 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 quite um, um, apposite for me because it concerns Gladstone's library, and the reason being is that um, Gladstone's home was at Harden Castle, which is a village uh, not far from where um, I lived as a boy. Um, and in fact, the Gladstone Library is, is due to open um, to summer festival revelers uh, this summer. Now, the Temple of Peace Library, um, which is in Gladstone's um, home, Harden Castle, um, is to um, be open uh, once of a lifetime opening for a thousand people who were attending the last event in Britain's summer festival season. Now, um, with uh, with its busts of Disraeli and Homer surrounded by gifts from 19th century's most important figures, it's easy to see why. William Gladstone's private library is considered one of the greatest political shrines in the world. 
Now, the private library wants to house the majority of Gladstone's staggering 30,000 strong book collection. Now, before his death, I mean, he was always a very active man, Gladstone. I mean, he would go out into the into the woods and chop down mm-hmm. trees. But anyway, he, he, he got a wheelbarrow and he loaded up the wheelbarrow um, and he took um, the, his collection of books across the estate to what would become and remains Britain's only prime ministerial library, which is the Gladstone Library in um, in uh, Harden, which is also um, known as St. Daniel's Library. And that um, uh, is where he put all his books. Now, the more uh, intimate Temple of Peace remained a very much private room for the Gladstone family. Um, and a, a small number of scholars and friends were granted um, rare uh, access. And it's tucked away behind the secret door. Um, appropriately, the door is uh, looking like a library shelf. Mm-hmm. And, and the Temple of Peace has remained practically untouched since the death of Gladstone and includes a bust, as I mentioned, of Disraeli, his greatest political rival, which Gladstone had placed directly in the eye line from his desk so he could have a look, a look at him um, from his desk. Now, Gladstone and Disraeli were the two giants of 19th century political, political scene in Britain. And Gladstone served as prime minister full time and Chancellor of the Exchequer for 12 years in total. And he is thought to have read, this is quite uh, uh, staggering, 22,000 books in his lifetime. I'm sort of quite pleased with that figure because it means that 8,000 books in his library he's never actually read. (laughs) Yes. Yes. He probably was just, that was in, I'll get round to those next, I think, probably. (laughs) Now, however, his his um, his uh, his uh, descendant, his great um, great grandson, Charlie Gladstone, and um, Charlie's uh, well, I suppose it's Sir Charlie Gladstone and his daughter Tara, is opening up the library to all comers as part of their Camp Good Life Festival in September. Yep. So, get along to Harton Castle in North Wales. Yes, I think the Temple of Peace as a name for your library sounds yes, really lovely. Very nice. It? Very evocative. Yes. Now, I've spotted a fantastic exhibition that's just opened at the British Library. It's called Gold, Spectacular Manuscripts from Around the World. And it features a selection of 50 books, scrolls, letters and documents from more than 20 countries, focusing on the extravagant gilding. Now, these are the star pieces from the British collection as surfaces pop with flashlights, but they seldom come out to show. So it's really fantastic Hmm. that they're doing an exhibition for all, all the bling that they have. Now, the values of these manuscripts lies in more than just the financial worth of their precious metal. So be it a Psalter, a Sutra or a Quran, the gold stands for spiritual glories. And of course, if it's a Mughal decree or a royal French dictate, the gilding emphasises majestic authority. And there's even a flashy little gold girdle bridle owned by Anne Boleyn, which surely doubled up as a stylish fashion accessory, as well as a handy reference for bi- biblical wisdom. Now, the elaborate artistry is delicate, and so you're going to need to peer through the showcases to marvel in all their glory. But you're able to do that, so the showcases are designed to help you do that. 
So gold is an exhibition to revel in, the manuscripts at its most alluring, most lavish and most ostentatiously eye-catching. And it's on the British Library until October the 2nd, so you've got all summer to go and see that. Mm, that sounds marvellous, I think. It sounds absolutely great. Now, this is the time to sit back, pop the kettle on for a cup of tea, relax and enjoy the rest of the programme as we have a very special treat for you, which Heather mentioned at the beginning of the programme, and it is is a reading of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Now, the reading's been retold by Real Reads, the publishing company that produces little masterpieces by retelling the world's greatest literature. They have a, a great selection of books, um, and they're just 64 pages long, each one carefully abridged to provide the essence of the story. And they're ideal, um, I think, as an introduction to young readers to the world of classics, and also provide a great way for anybody to become familiar with these wonderful titles from across the world. Now, as our listeners on Turning Pages, over the next couple of months, you will be able to listen to some of these audiobooks that we have chosen for you from this extensive list. And I know I, for one, am looking forward to revisiting some of the classics and I will admit, and in some cases, hearing them for the first time um, of these essential books. Yes, absolutely. Me too. So Pride and Prejudice, of course, is a romantic novel by Jane Austen, published anonymously in three volumes in eight. 1813. Gosh, that's a long time ago. Mm. So this is in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, of course. Yes. Now, it's inspired many stage and screen productions. One notable adaption, being one of my favourites anyway, was the 1995 TV miniseries starring Jennifer Earle and Colin Firth. And if you haven't seen that, I would encourage you to go and watch it. It is one of the best. It yeah. is, absolutely. Pride and Prejudice follows the turbulent relationship between Elizabeth Bennet, who's the daughter of a country gentleman, and Fitzwilliam Darcy, a rich aristocratic landowner. Now, they must overcome the titular sins of Pride and Prejudice, of course, in order to fall in love and to marry. Now, interestingly, this is often seen as Jane Austen's most popular book. And it was well received at the time of publication and the novel's popularity hasn't dwindled with time. So I think if we all have now our, got our cup of tea in our hands, I think we can listen. So this is um, Jane Austen by, sorry, of course it's not. It's <laughs> Jane Austen by, <laughs> yes, by Pride, Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice. Absolutely, it's Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, uh, retold for real reasons. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Retold by Jill Tavner The Proposal Mr Darcy paced awkwardly around the room. Elizabeth, sitting and watching him, observed his fine, tall figure and was surprised to sense uncertainty in his arrogant features. He sat down, cleared his throat as though to speak, said nothing and stood up again. Why had this man, the last person in the world she wanted to see, come to disturb her peaceful evening? Mr Darcy sat down again. It is no good, he began. I have fought hard against my feelings, but it has been in vain. I must tell you how ardently I admire and love you. I should like you to be my wife. Elizabeth stared at him in astonishment, blushed and remained silent. Taking her silence as encouragement, Mr Darcy continued, Your mother is vulgar and embarrassing. 
your younger sister's behaviour is objectionable, and your father stubbornly fails to correct her. You and your elder sister somehow rise above your family with honour and good sense. He smiled at Elizabeth. In spite of them all, you have earned my respect, admiration and love. He awaited her grateful response. Elizabeth struggled to control her voice. Mr. Darcy, I cannot thank you for your proposal when you so freely offend me. You like me against your judgment and against your will. You will therefore be more relieved than disappointed by my refusal. Had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, I might at least have felt some compassion for you. But I do not. Mr. Darcy stared in astonishment but said nothing. Elizabeth continued with feeling. I learned this afternoon that you were responsible for separating my dear sister Jane from your friend Mr. Bingley, thus spoiling the happiness of two good people. Mr. Darcy turned pale. Such a marriage would have brought shame to my friend. I have been kinder to him than I have been to myself. Now trembling, Elizabeth continued, Even if I had been able to overcome this scruple in my response to your proposal, I cannot forget your dishonourable treatment of poor Mr. Wickham, whose life you have ruined. Is this your opinion of me? asked Mr. Darcy the quietness of his voice barely hiding his disappointment and anger. Yes, you are the last man in the world I would marry. Without another word, Mr Darcy left the room. Watching from the window as his upright figure retreated along the garden path, Elizabeth was left in a terrible flutter. In spite of her dislike for him, it was flattering that the great Mr Darcy, one of the most eligible men in England, should love her. They had parted in mutual disappointment, surprise and anger. It would be several hours before either was able to reflect dispassionately upon the events of the past few months. What could have led to Mr Darcy's extraordinary proposal? What had led to Elizabeth's firm rejection of his love? Before the proposal. Like many mothers... Mrs. Bennet was firmly of the belief that any single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. As she had several daughters to dispose of, she was delighted to hear that such a gentleman was to move into the grand house at nearby Netherfield. What a fine thing this is for our girls, she told her long-suffering husband. Without lowering his newspaper, Mr. Bennet rolled his eyes to the ceiling and sighed. His attempts to continue reading were in vain. I do so hope our new neighbour, he's called Mr Bingley, you know, will host a ball. I'm sure he will want to marry one of our girls. Mrs Bennet was anxious that her girls should all benefit from the security of wealthy husbands. Mrs Bennet's wish for a ball was soon fulfilled. Invitations were received and promptly accepted and several days of anticipation were endured before the great day finally arrived. The Bennet sisters looked beautiful, of course, and the gentlemen were all handsome. Returning to her seat after an energetic dance, Elizabeth watched with pleasure as her sister Jane enjoyed her second dance with Mr Bingley. She smiled when she later overheard Mr Bingley tell his friend Mr Darcy that Jane was the most beautiful girl he had ever seen.
Come, Darcy, urged Mr Bingley. You have not yet graced the dance floor with your presence. You know that I detest dancing unless I know my partner, explained Mr Darcy, and there is not a woman in this room with whom it would be pleasant to dance. Miss Elizabeth Bennet is sitting alone. She is very pretty. I will ask Jane to introduce you. Mr Darcy looked coldly at Elizabeth. Their eyes briefly met. She is quite pretty, but not pretty enough to tempt me. Elizabeth quickly decided that Mr Darcy was the proudest, most disagreeable man in the world. In the days following the ball, she discovered that other people shared her opinion. Mr Bingley had been liked by everybody, whereas Mr Darcy had given universal offence. Elizabeth recounted the conversation she had overheard with good humour. Her lively, playful disposition enabled her to obtain enjoyment from most situations, and she was happy to laugh at herself. Jane was modestly pleased to have received Mr Bingley's attentions. He is sensible and good-humoured, with such perfect manners, she told Elizabeth. He is also handsome, teased her sister, as a gentleman should be. But Jane refused to condemn Mr Darcy's behaviour. She felt that he must have been misheard. Dear Jane, I have never heard you speak ill of anybody, observed Elizabeth. Whatever you might say, I am determined to believe that Mr Darcy is arrogant and proud. Mr Darcy and Mr Bingley had been friends for many years. Each admired in the other the qualities that he himself lacked. Mr Bingley's manner was friendly and open, whilst Mr Darcy provided dignity and reliable judgment. Mr Darcy had been pleased when his friend invited him to spend a few weeks at Netherfield as part of a house party, which also included Bingley's sister Caroline. After the ball, Mr Bingley eagerly told Darcy and his sister all about Jane. She smiles too much, observed Mr Darcy. Her curiosity aroused, Miss Bingley invited Jane to dine at Netherfield the following week. As Mr Bennet's carriage was unavailable that day, Jane decided to ride to Netherfield. But before she was halfway there, the skies opened and it started to pour with rain. Unfortunately, her soaking gave her a chill and she was unable to return home that evening. The following morning, anxious about her sister... Elizabeth walked the three muddy miles to visit her at Netherfield. Three miles of springing over puddles left Elizabeth with a muddy hem and a face glowing with health. When Elizabeth entered the room, Mr Darcy's silent stare made her feel uncomfortable. Far from meaning to be rude, however, Mr Darcy was admiring the beauty that exercise had given to their visitor's complexion. What Elizabeth took for cold contempt was in fact fascination with the spirit that sparkled in her eyes. Miss Bingley, noticing Mr Darcy's admiring look, waited for her brother to lead Elizabeth upstairs to Jane's room. As soon as the door had closed behind them, she turned to Mr Darcy. I have never seen such bad manners and such ridiculous behaviour. She has six inches of mud on her petticoat and her hair looks almost wild. Don't you agree, Mr Darcy? I was just thinking how much pleasure can be given 
by a pair of fine eyes in the face of a pretty woman. Miss Bingley fell silent. Elizabeth nursed Jane at Netherfield for four more days. Mr Darcy found himself wishing to know more about Elizabeth. He was fascinated by her intelligent face, her beautiful brown eyes and her easy, playful personality. He frequently found himself standing near to Elizabeth, enjoying her sparkling conversations with others. "'Don't you think I'm expressing myself remarkably well today, Mr Darcy?' teased Elizabeth on one such occasion. "'Yes, as always,' smiled Mr Darcy. On the fourth day, when Jane was sufficiently recovered, Mr Bingley invited Mr and Mrs Bennet and their younger daughter Lydia to dine with them all at Netherfield. Mrs Bennet bustled in, bursting with admiration for the house. "'Oh, Mr Bingley, I do not know a place in the country that is equal to Netherfield.' She stopped suddenly when she caught sight of Mr. Darcy. "'Oh, Lizzie, that proud man is here,' she whispered. Mr. Darcy watched in horror and disbelief, as one by one Elizabeth's family embarrassed themselves and everybody present. Lydia, only fifteen, spoke openly about her flirtations with the soldiers stationed in nearby Meryton. Far from stopping her, Mr. Bennet smilingly confided in Mr. Darcy. I do believe she is the silliest girl in England. At the dinner table, Mrs. Bennet whispered loudly to her husband, I'm sure Jane will soon be married to Mr. Bingley. Poor Elizabeth, blushing with shame, wished her mother would speak more quietly. Mr. Darcy looked across at his friend, who was deep in conversation with Jane. Could Mrs. Bennet be right? Marriage into this family would surely cause Mr Bingley a lifetime's embarrassment. For himself too, he felt that the evening provided a useful warning. Were it not for Elizabeth's undignified family, he too might have been in danger of falling in love. Amongst all the soldiers stationed at Meryton, one attracted more female admiration than any other. Mr Wickham was handsome and charming. Whatever he said, he said to please others. Whatever he did, he did with gentlemanly grace. Elizabeth soon realised that she was the lucky girl towards whom his gallantry was principally directed. One fine morning, as Mr Wickham accompanied Elizabeth and her sisters into town, their conversation was interrupted by the sound of an approaching horse. It was Mr Darcy, who dismounted to greet the group. He was cordial to the girls, but Elizabeth was surprised to see all friendliness drain from his face when he looked at Wickham. Glancing at her soldier companion, she noticed that he had turned rather pale. After a few minutes of politeness, Mr Darcy rode away. What could be the meaning of their strange reactions? Elizabeth was intrigued. Fortunately, she had to endure the suspense only until the following morning, when Mr Wickham introduced the topic she had half expected him to avoid. I was not aware that Darcy was in the area, he began. Are you well acquainted with him? Elizabeth's delicacy abandoned her. More than I wish to be, she replied. I find him disagreeable and proud. You do not surprise me, smiled Wickham. I have known his family all my life. Noticing Elizabeth's astonishment, he continued... 
You were probably puzzled by the coldness of our meeting yesterday. Elizabeth nodded, awaiting an explanation. Darcy and I are not on friendly terms. My father worked for his father at Pemberley, their magnificent estate in Derbyshire. His father treated me as a second son. When the old gentleman died, he left money in his will to ensure my financial comfort, but his son prevented me from ever receiving the money. Elizabeth was shocked. Surely nobody could be so dishonourable as to pervert their own father's will. I had done nothing to deserve such treatment, added Wickham. His only motive was jealousy of his father's affection towards me. Then he deserves to be publicly disgraced, observed Elizabeth indignantly. I can hardly believe him as bad as this. Surely his pride would prevent such dishonesty. Oh, he is not entirely bad, Mr. Wickham retreated a little. He is generous to his tenants. To his young sister, he is a caring and affectionate brother. He is capable of being fair, sincere and agreeable. All of this, however, arises from his pride. His main motivation is to appear honourable. That evening, Elizabeth repeated the conversation to Jane. Distressed by such a report, Jane could not believe Mr Darcy to be so bad. Dearest Jane, smiled Elizabeth, you cannot think well of them both. Either Mr Darcy is guilty or Mr Wickham is a liar. You must decide for yourself. I know what I think. I cannot believe that Mr Bingley would be friends with such a man, said Jane thoughtfully. Another ball was about to take place and Elizabeth prepared for it with uncharacteristic ill-humour. Mr Wickham, with whom she had so hoped to dance, had decided not to attend. I wish to avoid a certain gentleman, he explained. That certain gentleman was therefore much to blame for spoiling Elizabeth's evening before it had even begun. Elizabeth's mood was not improved when Miss Caroline Bingley took a seat next to her as the music began. They watched as Jane and Mr Bingley opened the dancing. "'Don't you agree that my brother is capable of winning any lady's heart?' asked Miss Bingley. Elizabeth smiled. He had certainly won Jane's. "'Of course, we all expect him to marry Mr Darcy's sister,' whispered Miss Bingley, as though confiding in an old friend. "'It is only a matter of time.' Elizabeth's smile lost its warmth. Is your brother aware of this expectation? Of course. Then I wish him happiness in his attachment to such a family. Miss Bingley looked searchingly into Elizabeth's face. Ah, she said, I see that Mr Wickham has been talking to you. I must warn you that Wickham is by no means a respectable man. Thank you for your concern, said Elizabeth coldly. You may, of course, ignore my warning if you wish, sighed Miss Bingley standing up. It was kindly meant. As the evening went on, Elizabeth noticed that Mr Darcy's eyes seemed to follow her wherever she went. She turned to find him standing beside her, awkward and silent. What could it mean? It could hardly be that he admired her. She decided to challenge him. Is there something amiss with my dress, Mr Darcy? No, indeed, Darcy replied. You look beautiful. 
Elizabeth felt flustered. When Mr. Darcy asked for the pleasure of her company for the next dance, she quite forgot to refuse him. They began the dance in silence. Well, Mr. Darcy, said his partner eventually, I see that we are both unsociable and unwilling to speak. That may be true of me, Miss Bennet, but I cannot say that it is generally true of you. I have been trying to work out your character, she told him. I am puzzled by the different accounts that I have heard. Do you consider yourself to be a good judge of character? he asked. Excellent, replied Elizabeth archly. I am rarely wrong. And once your opinion is formed, do you allow yourself to be blinded by prejudice? I hope not, she smiled. Do you? I am afraid I have faults, said Mr. Darcy, surprised to find himself speaking so openly. I am too unforgiving. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. An uncomfortable silence followed before Elizabeth felt able to venture what she really wanted to say. Mr. Wickham has had the misfortune to lose your good opinion, for which he appears to be suffering. Mr. Darcy decided it was time to change the subject. At that moment they were approached by an elderly gentleman. May I congratulate you upon your choice of partner, Mr. Darcy? There is not a more beautiful girl in the room. Mr. Darcy accepted the compliment with a gallant bow. The man continued, I hope to see you dance together again at your friend's forthcoming wedding. Mr. Darcy followed the man's eyes towards Bingley and Jane, who were once again dancing together. For the rest of the evening, Darcy watched the happy couple studiously. The next morning, Mr. Darcy had much to think about. Watching Mr. Bingley with Jane last night had assured him that his friend was indeed in love. However, Jane had behaved with such dignity and reserve that he had seen few signs to suggest that she felt the same. He was concerned for his friend. Rather than feeling offended by Elizabeth's frank speaking, Darcy found her even more attractive. He wondered what Wickham had told her about him. Why was he to be constantly troubled by that man? Wickham had manipulated his father and then squandered the money left to him in the will. When Mr. Darcy had given him even more money, he had squandered that too. His greatest crime, however, had been his attempt to elope with Mr. Darcy's impressionable 15-year-old sister Georgiana. Mr. Darcy shuddered to remember the event. Fortunately, his sister had confided in him, and the disaster was avoided. Now, Wickham had appeared in Meryton, and seemed determined to turn everyone's opinion against Mr. Darcy, including that of Elizabeth Bennet. In order to free Bingley from Jane, and to save himself from Elizabeth's charms, Mr. Darcy decided to persuade Bingley to break up the house party and leave Netherfield immediately. This would have the added benefit of removing himself from Wickham's painful presence. Poor Mr. Bingley, who had absolute respect for Mr. Darcy's judgment, and was naturally modest, was soon persuaded that he had misread Jane's friendliness and that she was not in love with him. Mr Darcy's argument was eagerly supported by Miss Bingley, 
who was anxious to remove both men from the charms of the Bennet girls. Within a week, Netherfield was empty. The following weeks were most uncomfortable in the Bennet household. Mrs. Bennet was inconsolable after the loss of Mr. Bingley. My poor nerves are in tatters, she complained. In contrast to her mother, Jane struggled to hide her disappointment. I was mistaken to believe that he loved me, she told Elizabeth. It was vanity on my side. In spite of Jane's best efforts, her cheeks grew pale and thin. When her aunt, Mrs Gardiner, invited her to spend some time in London, everybody agreed that a change of scene would be beneficial. Elizabeth was angered by her suspicion that Mr Bingley had been influenced by his friend and his sister. In addition to this, her calling in Mr Wickham's attentions towards her offended her pride. His gallantry was now directed towards young Lydia, whose silly flirtation with him revealed the ease with which he could be flattered. Above all else, Elizabeth missed Jane. With such a mother and such a foolish younger sister... Her home was far from perfect. It was therefore with some relief that she accepted an invitation from her newly married friend Charlotte to visit her in Kent. Elizabeth was interested to see Charlotte's new home and was also intrigued by the fact that she lived within the grounds of Lady Catherine de Bourgh's estate, Rosings. As Lady Catherine was Darcy's aunt, Elizabeth was curious to learn more about her. When she arrived in Kent, Elizabeth was greeted by Charlotte's husband. Miss Bennet, you have been afforded the greatest honour, he enthused, helping her down from the coach. Lady Catherine has condescended to invite us all to dine with her at Rosings. In case Elizabeth did not feel the honour quite as much as she ought, he described Rosings' grandeur in detail. Do not worry about your clothes, he said, looking her up and down. Her ladyship will not mind you being simply dressed. She likes to distinguish herself by her superior attire. Elizabeth was amused to find Charlotte's husband so absurd. Elizabeth's delight in absurd people was further gratified by Lady Catherine, who displayed even greater arrogance and pride than Mr Darcy himself. How old are you, Miss Bennet? she asked rudely. You cannot expect me to own that, smiled Elizabeth. Lady Catherine decided that Elizabeth, one of the few people not to have treated her with anything other than grovelling subservience, was a rude, ill-bred girl. My nephew is to visit tomorrow, announced Lady Catherine. Mr Darcy, asked Elizabeth, slightly alarmed. Why? Do you know him, Miss Bennet? Mr Darcy dutifully paid his annual visit to his aunt, accompanied by his good friend, Colonel Fitzwilliam. Surprised to learn that Elizabeth was staying nearby, he persuaded Lady Catherine that it would be polite to invite her to dinner again. When they had finished eating, Mr Darcy found himself watching Elizabeth as she moved across the room and sat down at the piano. Do you mean to frighten me, Mr Darcy, by listening to me play? asked Elizabeth as he walked towards her. I am not afraid of you, though I hear your sister plays so well. Surely, bowed Mr Darcy, you cannot truly believe that I have any intention of alarming you. The following morning, 
Mr. Darcy visited Elizabeth at Charlotte's house. Pleased to find her alone, he accepted the chair she offered and pulled it closer to hers. They sat and made awkward conversation. After a few minutes, he pulled his chair away again and left. Mr. Darcy's behaviour was most strange. A few days later, when Elizabeth told Charlotte about his visit and told her how she kept bumping into him in the woods, Charlotte smiled. My dear Lizzie, he must be in love with you. Elizabeth found Colonel Fitzwilliam's company far more pleasant. He had the added attraction of being able to give her more information about Mr. Darcy's character. He is a very caring brother to Miss Darcy, he told her. He is also a loyal friend to me and to others. He recently told me that he had saved one of his friends from an embarrassing marriage. It seems that the lady showed little affection and her family little decency. Later, alone in her room, Elizabeth wept with anger and sorrow. Darcy's pride had ruined every hope of happiness for Jane. He had broken the most affectionate, most generous heart in the world. Elizabeth's distress gave her a headache. Rather than accompany Charlotte and her husband to Rosings that evening, she chose instead to sit alone and think about all that was bad about Mr Darcy. It was most unfortunate for him that he chose that particular evening to knock on her door and make his proposal of marriage. After the proposal. His proposal having been so rudely rejected by Elizabeth, Mr Darcy returned angrily to Rosings. He had not expected rejection, let alone insults. Her accusation of ungentlemanlike behaviour stung him and he could not forget the expression on Elizabeth's face when she said he was the last man in the world she would want to marry. The following morning, he wrote Elizabeth a letter. You last night accused me of two offences of a very different nature. The first was that I had detached Mr Bingley from your sister. I admit that I did indeed persuade my friend to leave Netherfield. I truly believed that Jane did not love him. Whilst I know now that I was mistaken, I also had other motives. In your heart, you must admit that your family caused you and your sister Jane pain by their indelicate behaviour. The other accusation was that I had ruined the prospects of Mr Wickham. In fact, Wickham did receive £1,000 from my father's will and more besides from myself all of which he has spent with great speed. In addition, it pains me to reveal that my sister, in her naivety, agreed to elope with Wickham. Had she not decided at the last minute to confide in me, she would have been ruined. For the truth of everything here related, Colonel Fitzwilliam can vouch. I will only add, God bless you. With the letter in his hand, he set off in the hope of meeting Elizabeth on one of her daily walks. Elizabeth caught sight of Mr Darcy too late to avoid him. I hoped to meet you, he said. Please do me the honour of reading this letter. He bowed and walked away. Sitting on a fallen tree trunk, Elizabeth, trembling, read the letter. With some pain, she had to admit his point about her family. 
When she read what he had written about Mr. Wickham, she cried out loud, Oh, I am ashamed of myself, how despicably I have acted. She remembered how her vanity had been flattered by Wickham and her pride offended by Darcy. It was upon this that she had based all her opinions. I have been blind and prejudiced. Until this moment I never knew myself. Mr Darcy left Rosings the following day. Elizabeth thought it unlikely that their paths would cross again and regretted that she would have no chance of apologising to Darcy for her prejudiced views of his character and behaviour. Later that summer, Elizabeth accepted an invitation to travel in Derbyshire with her aunt. When her aunt suggested that they take the opportunity to visit Mr Darcy's nearby Pemberley estate, one of the most beautiful stately homes in England, Elizabeth's curiosity conflicted with her sense that such a visit would be inappropriate. Her curiosity won. Mr Darcy always enjoyed his summers at Pemberley. It had been home to him and his sister Georgiana all his life. Enjoying a walk in the grounds one fine morning, he stopped dead in his tracks. Ahead of him was Elizabeth Bennet. Their eyes met and the faces of both were instantly overspread with the deepest blush. It was a most uncomfortable moment. The first to recover, Mr Darcy greeted Elizabeth with his usual civility. Elizabeth's embarrassment at being found at Pemberley was obvious. Mr Darcy decided that this was his opportunity to show Elizabeth how mistaken she had been about his character. During the following week, Mr Darcy showed Elizabeth and her aunt warm hospitality. With understandable pride, he showed them around his home and introduced them to Georgiana. Miss Darcy later told her brother how much she liked Elizabeth and gently hinted to him that she would be a very welcome addition to the family at Pemberley. Mr Darcy was very pleased. At the end of the week, when Elizabeth left Derbyshire to return home, Mr Darcy decided that it might be a good idea to visit Mr Bingley and persuade him to return to Netherfield immediately. As Darcy had anticipated, Bingley was easily persuaded. Though she had been mortified to be discovered at Pemberley, Elizabeth was most grateful for Mr Darcy's sensitive and generous hospitality. She was flattered by his attentions to her and delighted by Pemberley itself though she was afraid even to consider that he might still be in love with her after her terrible treatment of him, she could not help reflecting that it might be rather pleasant to be mistress of Pemberley. She left Derbyshire with a confused heart. Even greater confusion awaited her when she arrived home. Her mother, in tears of violent grief, flew into her arms. Oh, Lizzie, Lydia has gone. Oh, what a terrible man. I know he will not marry her. Mr. Bennet must go after them. He will have to fight a duel. Turning to Jane for a sensible explanation of what had happened, Elizabeth learned that they had just received news that Lydia had run away with a soldier from Meryton. Who is the man? asked Elizabeth, dreading the answer. Mr. Wickham. Elizabeth sat down. There might not be much sense in her mother's words, but she was right about one thing. From what Elizabeth now knew about Wickham's character, 
she was certain that he would not marry Lydia. Elizabeth angrily reflected that Lydia's foolish action had damaged far more than just herself. She had brought misery and humiliation upon them all. What gentleman would now associate himself with such a family? Not Mr Bingley, and certainly not Mr Darcy. After two days of trying to calm her mother while they tried to find out where Lydia had gone, Elizabeth was very tired. A knock on the door made it necessary that she compose herself. When the door opened, however, Elizabeth's astonishment at seeing Mr Darcy standing there took away all that composure. She burst into tears. Good God, what is the matter? asked Mr Darcy, gently supporting her as they went back inside. Lydia has eloped with Mr Wickham, sobbed Elizabeth. I am grieved indeed, said Mr Darcy, frowning. He became thoughtful and gloomy. Elizabeth watched with sadness. Her attractiveness was surely fading in his eyes. All hope now lost, she realised how much she cared for him. Mr Darcy had felt nervous about visiting Elizabeth's home. Would she be angry or pleased that he had followed her all the way from Pemberley? Did her friendliness last week mean that she might reconsider his proposal? As soon as she opened the door and told him about Wickham, his plans changed. That evening, he left a surprised Mr Bingley alone at Netherfield and headed for London. Two days later, Mr Darcy traced Wickham to a London inn and confronted him with his misdeed. How much will it take to make you honour Miss Lydia Bennet? he asked the grinning soldier. Enough to cover my gambling debts would be a good beginning. Mr Darcy nodded. He felt embarrassed by Wickham's lack of dignity and integrity. I will also need enough to support myself and Lydia for a year, continued Wickham. Should I agree to marry her? he added slyly. Mr Darcy nodded again. I will give you half of the money now and half after your wedding. I insist, however that nobody should ever discover that I have given you this money. Why are you involving yourself? I feel responsible. Had I not been too proud to tell people about your low character, they would not have trusted you. Furthermore, as I suspect that your action is designed to gain more money from me, I am further responsible for the Bennets' unhappiness and am forced to help. Is there not another reason? Wickham smiled. Mr Darcy did not answer. Certainly, if Lydia married Wickham, her family's respectability, and, more specifically, that of her sisters, would be restored. In the midst of all the anxiety, Elizabeth had to face another, most unexpected trial. Lady Catherine de Bourgh had condescended to travel all the way from Rosings to pay her a visit. The grand lady looked haughtily around Elizabeth's home. A modest house, displaying little taste, she observed. Still, who could expect taste from such a family as yours? I have heard about your sister's recent behaviour. With difficulty, Elizabeth remained silent. Lady Catherine chose a seat. You know why I am here, don't you? Elizabeth didn't. I think you have charmed my nephew. However, you must promise not to get engaged to him. 
Astonished by her rudeness, Elizabeth answered, I will make no such promise. Any connection with your family will disgrace him. I am a gentleman's daughter, and Mr. Darcy is a gentleman. If I am his choice, why may I not accept? You obstinate, headstrong girl, said Lady Catherine as she marched from the house, leaving Elizabeth in a flutter of anger and astonishment. What a dreadful woman she was. A few days later, a letter arrived from Lydia. I can barely write for laughing, she wrote. My Wickham and I are married. How jolly to be married before my sisters. That proud Mr Darcy was at our wedding. Oh, I promise not to mention his name. My dear Wickham will be quite cross. Elizabeth quickly read the rest of Lydia's letter. Why had Mr Darcy been at Lydia's wedding? How had Wickham been persuaded to do the honourable thing and marry her? A reference later in the letter to Wickham's suddenly receiving a considerable sum of money caught her attention. She sat. She thought. She wondered. Could it possibly be that Mr Darcy had saved Lydia and all of her family from disgrace? Could it possibly be that he deserved all the gratitude in the world? As Lady Catherine stood before him, reporting Elizabeth's outrageous responses to her demands, Mr Darcy reflected to himself that he had been wrong about many things. Jane did love Mr Bingley, and a person should not always be judged by their family. He certainly hoped that Elizabeth would not judge him by his aunt. He could not help smiling. Elizabeth's refusal to promise his aunt not to marry him gave him hope. The following morning, Mr Darcy and Mr Bingley rode to the Bennets' home. After a meeting with a stunned Mr Bennet in his study, each went to find their chosen sister. Mr Darcy found Elizabeth reading. She stood up quickly, eager to thank him. He stopped her. Elizabeth... If your feelings are still as they were at Rosings, please tell me. My affections and wishes are unchanged. Feeling happiness beyond anything she had felt before, Elizabeth assured him that her feelings were now entirely different. They spent the next few hours walking and talking about all that had happened between them, each admitting their own errors. I was indeed too proud, confessed Mr Darcy. And I was too prejudiced, laughed Elizabeth. They found Jane and Mr Bingley holding hands in the parlour. Oh, Lizzie, how shall I bear such happiness, asked Jane. Why is everybody not as happy as I am? She stopped and looked quizzically at Elizabeth's smiling face. I'm sorry to tell you, dear Jane, that it is already decided between Mr Darcy and I that we are to be the happiest couple in the world. Mr and Mrs Bennet walked in. Mr Bennet warmly congratulated both gentlemen. For a rare moment, Mrs Bennet was silent. Then her emotions overcame her. Good gracious, bless me, three daughters married, Mr Darcy and Mr Bingley. Girls, didn't I always say that every single man in possession of a fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs>
Uh, it's a truly enjoyable story, I think, wasn't it? And I, I hope everyone else enjoyed it too. Absolutely. Yes, it is. So thank you very much indeed, Real Reads. Yes, it was excellent. That was very, very good. Now, um, the books we've been recommending today are Jennifer Saints Electra, uh, published by Wildfire. Now, Mick Heron, uh, Bad Actors, published by Baskerville. Now, of course, if you want his first one, then it's Slow Horses. Yes, indeed. Don't forget that one, Slow Horses. Uh, And then we've got um, House of Glass by Hadley Freeman, and that's published by Fourth Estate. All the Light You Cannot See is published by Anthony Durr, published by Scribner. And, of course, we've heard Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which was the abridged version available um, from Real Reads as an audio or by Baker Street Press, who produced them as an abridged 64-page book. Now, this is the publishing company that produces books that are described by Radio 4 as little masterpieces by the retelling of the world's greatest literature. And they've got really, really good selection, I think, Heather, and they fantastic books. And as I say, they're just 64 pages long, so they give you a nice, uh, a nice introduction to the book, and each one is carefully abridged to provide the essence of each story. And they're an ideal introduction to young readers, to the world of classics, and also provide a great way for anybody who wants to become familiar with the key titles from across the world, or indeed, you know, want to refresh their memory, perhaps, and feel they can't read the whole, the whole thing. So let's go to take one of uh, one of the Baker Street Press books. Oh, yes, I think it's not, they're not just for children, are they? Um, no, they're not. No, they're not. Um, because, in fact, I, I remember um, uh, the, the edition of um, She by H. Ryder Haggard um, that I still have. It's a paperback. Well, that was actually um, a sort of an abridged version for, <clears throat> for um, a reading scheme. Um, and I think they're really good. So it gives you the taste, you know. Yes, without, yeah. yeah. And actually what they've done is uh, rather than abridge them, they've actually retold them, which I think mm. is an interesting concept. Yes. So yes. it sort of gives you the essence of the book uh, in their own words. And then what I also quite like about them is they're, they're telling the uh, the reader, you know, if you like this, go and read the full book, uh, yes. you know, and these are the characters and this possibly one of the two of the storylines that they've missed out. And obviously in the retelling, mm. you've got to make choices as to what to include or not. So I think they've, it's a very clever approach that they've taken. Oh, um, most definitely. Yeah. So you don't, don't feel as though you, you can just read it and then leave it. You can read mm. it, enjoy it and actually leave it like that. Or if you want to go further on, go back to the original text. Indeed, indeed. Absolutely. So glad you didn't do your Mrs. Bennett in (laughs) Oh, well, I was. was, (laughs) Yeah, I was. I was channeling myself. I was channeling myself. (laughs) Because what would she say? (laughs) Oh, Mr. Bennett, we're in an uproar. (laughs) We are indeed. (laughs) So thank you very much indeed for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. And do tell your friends. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share or any book news. So if if you've just read a great book or you're a member of a book club and you want to talk about what you're discussing, then that would be great because recommendations are what it's all about. So listening to River Radio and turning pages has never been easier. Now we're broadcasting on DAB. And of course, you can also listen to River Radio on almost any internet connected device or smart speaker. 
There's a host of great programmes you can listen to, both music programmes and talk focused. So Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12. And if you miss that, we are repeated on Saturday afternoons between two o'clock and three o'clock and of course you can always catch up on any past programs you have missed you can just search listen again directly from our website which is www.river.radio and turning pages is also available as a podcast you just search for turning pages on river radio and you can get that from your normal podcast provider So thank you very much for joining us and do like our podcast because that really helps. So next week at Turning Pages, we'll be going to be joined by Tilly Brogan with her book choice, This Is Going to Hurt by Adam Kay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one.